Today's reading is Exodus chapter 1, and you can find it on page 58 of the Church Bible. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name was Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, If you see that the babe is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray, please, you would teach us now. Uh, Thank you for this wonderful book of Exodus. And we pray that you would open our eyes to your greatness. Father, particularly this morning, bring us comfort. Lift our eyes to you and your greatness and your goodness. And therefore, strengthen our hearts, we pray. Amen. Like I say, we uh, start the book of Exodus this morning uh, with all that happened this last week. It was worth considering whether we changed the passage, but actually, as I'd already done the preparation, uh, I thought, actually, there's a huge amount in this passage and the things that we're going to be looking at which are very, very relevant for us uh, because we come to a people. Well, in the book of Exodus, the main action is that of deliverance, isn't it? 
If you've heard of the book of Exodus, you probably know the big action in the book is that of a deliverance of a people, a rescue of a whole nation who were enslaved in Egypt and rescued and brought out uh, of, of that country and brought out to be a kingdom and priests and a holy nation. Now, I've split the book in two. The, the first half we'll, we'll look at before Christmas, and that is rescued or freed from. What these Israelites were freed from, how they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And the second half, after Christmas, uh, chapter 19 onwards, is freed for, freed for worship, because uh, they weren't just freed for God to say, well, you're now out of slavery, off you go, do whatever you like. They were freed, rescued in order to worship God and to be his people, his nation, a people chosen by God. But before we get to the rescue in this first half of the book, we need to see the slavery. We need to see the captivity that they were freed from. And that's what we see in this opening chapter. And it is a darkness descending. And as we see the darkness descending on this nation, this group of people, this family, actually, I think there is lots for us to learn in our own lives and for us, actually, as a nation as well. It would help you, I think, to have the passage open in front of you. So, verse, uh, so page 58, you'll see chapter 1 there. And I'm just going to skim through a little bit of it uh, to start off with. You see, the start of the chapter is uh, relatively positive. You've got God's people, which is a family, basically. It's Jacob's family, and they go to Egypt. You've got the names of his 12 sons, and they all are in Egypt. They have to go there. You can see the story at the end of the book of Genesis. They go there because of a famine. The family goes there and there are, we're told in verse 4, 70 of them. It's not verse 4 at all, is it? Oh, you're mumbling at me. There we go, verse 5. Thank you. Verse 5, we see there are 70 of them who go down there. This is a big family. These are people God has particularly chosen. These are the Israelites, sons of Jacob. And they're in Egypt. And they were doing okay until, verse 8, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. The, the significance of Joseph, again, you'll have to look back in Genesis. But this king, this new king, doesn't know anything about Joseph. And through fear, due to fear, he makes the Israelites slaves. And verse 14 tells us how bad things became for them. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Bitter lives, day by day, under the whip of the Egyptian slave masters, toiling, horrible lives. 
In these few verses, in these few verses from the start of the book, we have covered about 400 years. May not have felt like it, but we covered 400 years of them going to Egypt, of everything being okay, to them now having lives of bitter misery under the whip of the Egyptian slave masters. And yet, we need to see that even in the darkness... And even in the silence from heaven, because actually at this point, over those 400 years, there is no word from God. In the silence from heaven, in the darkness that descends, we need to see God is still being faithful to his promises. The darkness and the silence from God did not mean he'd abandoned his people. They did not mean he was far off or that he was unconcerned. So our first point, which is on the screen and on the back of your service order, is God's quiet faithfulness through dark times. How do we see God's faithfulness? It's there in verse 7. It says, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Using language which echoes that of very early in the book of Genesis when God created everything and said, be fruitful and multiply. Here we have God's people in the land of Egypt. This is before they became slaves, but they are multiplying. And then verse 12, once they are being oppressed, uh, verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. It's like if you've been in the swimming pool and there's a float there and you try and push that float down, every time it just springs back up again. So too with the Israelites, as God tries, as Pharaoh tries to oppress them, as he tries to suppress them, as he tries to reduce their numbers, tries to dominate them, so they just keep springing back up again. Just more and more of them being born. And they grow and they grow. And this is God keeping his promise. Because in the book of Genesis, so the book before Exodus, God had made a promise to Abraham, who was Jacob's grandfather. And there were several important promises that God made to him. But one key one was that his descendants would become a great nation. Well, when they moved down to Egypt, they weren't a great nation with it. 70 people is hardly a great nation. It's a big family, but it's not a great nation. But they grew, and they grew, and the Egyptians couldn't stop them growing. And here is God keeping his promise. Oh, day to day, day by day, the people of God may have wondered, where is God? Moment by moment, they may have thought, is God going to keep his promises? Is God really with us? And the answer is, he is with them. And he is fulfilling his promises. And so in our lives and in the world around us, we're in a world with many difficulties and much uncertainty, aren't we? And the death of the queen for many can be a cause of darkness and instability, 
but that's been around us for some time and it feels like it's growing doesn't it and what does the future hold on a global scale and individually it feels like we're going through dark times and maybe it's going to get darker and maybe in our own lives we start to think God are you really with us are you there And when suffering comes our way, we want to know, God, what's the purpose of this? Why is this happening? What's the plan? We have God's promises in his word that that all things work for the good of those who love him. And he has promised he will always be with us. But God, are you? Are you actually with us? Or are you distant? Are you far off? Zoom's been a great invention, hasn't it? It's been a really, really useful thing. It was really useful during the pandemic for meetings that you could still have them even though they were on Zoom. And you can use them as family to get in touch with others. Or you can use it, as we do, to keep an eye on your dog at home so that when you're out, you know what he's up to. But it's not the same as being there in person. If your dog starts wrecking the place and you can see it on Zoom, what are you going to do about it? It's not the same as being there, is it? What's God like? Is he on Zoom with us? Is he kind of there but not there? Is he at a distance watching us? No. He is fully with us. There may be times where it feels like he isn't. There may be times where it feels like we're unsure of his promises. But we need to read passages like this to see he is not at a distance. He is still with us. And there are times, aren't there, where we have to take that verse from Proverbs, seriously, where it it says, trust the Lord your God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We've got to trust him. Lean on him. And say, whatever I see in the world around me, I'm going to trust you're here with me. And you will fulfill your promise, as you always have. God's quiet faithfulness through dark times. But second, also, faith in dark times. Pharaoh, as we see, decides he needs to take more direct action to get rid of what he thinks is the threat of the Israelites. So he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill any baby boys. That is, as soon as the baby is being born, when the midwife is there, as the delivery is happening, when they're on the delivery stool, the the Pharaoh's plan is that these midwives might subtly kill the baby boys. And maybe the parents won't spot it and think the child died in childbirth. Now, by telling them to do this, Pharaoh is actually pitting himself, not just against God's people. He's not just acting in his own interest. He is actually pitting himself against the Lord God. And this is a battle which we will see through the first half of the book of Exodus. I mean, it's a one-sided battle, but it is a battle nevertheless that's there of Pharaoh versus God. And this is clearly, Pharaoh is pitting himself against God. Whether he knows it or not, he is. Because God has promised this group, this family will become a mighty nation. He is determined to suppress them, to stop them growing. 
So he's pitting himself against God's promises, which is always a dangerous place to be, isn't it? And his weapons, Pharaoh's weapons, are slavery and death. Except he hadn't reckoned on Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives. And there's a wonderful, important insight in verse 17. Would you have a look down? The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Just notice there that who they fear. They fear God and so disobey the king. This fear is not terror. It is an awe, a respect, a recognising the greater power and authority of God. And therefore they say, we know who we will obey. And it isn't you, king. And remember, this is in a time of bitterness, a time of seeming silence from heaven for hundreds of years. Yet they say, we are still going to fear God and entrust ourselves to him. Though it may have led to their deaths, they recognise they must obey God. What an inspiration these midwives are. But before we take inspiration from them, we do just need to address a problem, don't we? Which is, having disobeyed, they're confronted by the king, by the pharaoh. In verse 18, it says, uh, he confronts them saying, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Verse 19, the midwives answer Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, they're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Which is a wonderful little dig, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, these Hebrew women are far more vigorous, Egyptian women are a bit pathetic, kind of thing. The problem though is, are they lying? And if they are lying, it looks like, verse 20, it says, So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So it looks like God is rewarding them for this. Well, that looks like a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Is God saying it's okay to lie in these circumstances? Well, uh, I think in this case, uh, Alec Matir, wonderful uh, Bible scholar, who wrote a book on Exodus, Uh, He says this, God did not bless their economy with the truth, but their resolute standing for what was right. In other words, God didn't say, you lied, fantastic, I will reward you for that. No, he rewards them because they stood up for what was right. And actually, I don't think there's a comment particularly there about whether lying in these circumstances is right or wrong. It's more of a comment on they stood up for what was right. But actually, uh, this isn't going to give you a complete answer on this one, by the way. But actually, doesn't this reveal a little bit of the character of God? You see, God is described in Exodus 34 wonderfully. When he, uh, it's a wonderful moment, and we'll come to it much later on, when God passes in front of Moses and declares his character and says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, 
and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now we'll come on to that more in due course. But you have a God here who is gracious, compassionate, forgiving. And here are these midwives standing for what is right and God being gracious to them, even though they do so imperfectly. And isn't that what we need to hear too? Because the challenge from them for us is that living in a dark world, we need to stand for what is right. And increasingly, it's becoming harder and harder for people to stand for what God says in the workplace, in their families. It's just harder. And when we do stand up and say, right, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to stand up and be counted. Often when we come away from that, we don't feel, yes, I stood up for what was right. We often come away feeling, I don't know that I got that right. I don't know that I said it right. Maybe I was harsh. Maybe I got it wrong. Isn't it wonderful to know that as we stand for what is right, God is gracious and forgiving, and we can trust ourselves to him, as they did. Well, the darkness descends, and the darkness seems like it becomes overwhelming, because although the midwives say they won't kill the baby boys, or don't kill the baby boys, Yet the proclamation is made that everyone should throw babies into the river Nile. Everyone should throw the, ba- the Hebrew baby boys, the Israelite baby boys, into the river Nile. And that's where chapter 1 ends. And now we're going to see the beginning of chapter 2. So Robin, if you'd come and read chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 for us, that would be great. Thank you. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robin. So what's God's plan? How's he going to rescue his people? At a time when the people are commanded to throw the Israelite baby boys into the river, we focus on one family, one baby boy who was born. 
And here is the beauty of how God works. A weak and helpless baby boy under the sentence of death is his means of rescuing his people. And he is preserved in the most wonderful way. So here is our last point. A weak yet inextinguishable light. And he does look weak. He's a little baby boy. Helpless. And yet he is inextinguishable. However, I mean, everything that comes along in these verses, and they're wonderful verses, yet he's preserved miraculously. Did you see it? His mother, mother, another wonderful woman of faith in these opening chapters, his mother realises when she can't hide him anymore, she decides to be obedient to the king and put him in the Nile by taking a basket covering it in tar, making it waterproof. Actually, the word is an ark. An ark, same word as used of Noah's ark. But it's a little ark, a little life-saving boat. And she takes her baby boy and puts him in that little boat and puts him in the river. What a dangerous thing to do. And yet... And how risky, how risky for God's plan that this is going to be the rescuer, yet he is put into a river in a little basket. Uh, Philip Ryken wrote a book on Exodus and he says this, at one, one moment in history, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was riding down the river Nile in a little papyrus basket. His mother made it as safe as she could, of course, but ultimately it was God who protected the precious cargo of redemption. However frightening an experience it was for Moses himself, who was crying when they found him, he was never safer than when he was in that basket. God was right there working out his salvation. Utterly safe in that basket. And... The baby's sister, who we find out later is Miriam, watches on as Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby. Now, this is another dangerous moment, isn't it? What's she going to do? Pharaoh has issued the decree that all Israelite baby boys should be thrown in the river. Here's his daughter finding an Israelite baby boy. What's she going to do? Well, we know, don't we? Miriam says to her, shall I find a Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? And she says yes. So she goes and gets her mother, Moses' mother, to come and look after him. This is the moment, one time when I did a, a school assembly, a whole load of primary school kids, I got some up the front to act it out. This is the only time there's ever been a spontaneous round of applause from all the children. They loved it because here's Moses' mother now looking after Moses. And there's a wonderful line, verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Isn't that lovely? Isn't God good? Isn't he gracious? That, and the irony is just delightful. She is now being paid by Pharaoh's household to look after her baby boy, who was under a sentence of death. 
And this baby boy is going to grow up and in the end defeat Pharaoh and lead God's people out of slavery. Here is the first glimpse of light. A baby boy, born in weakness, born under a death sentence, yet miraculously preserved. A weak yet inextinguishable light. As we've said, we too live in a dark world. A world in which there is suffering, a world of war and poverty, a world of death, a world that the Bible says, well, all these things point to a slavery, the slavery uh, of sin, slavery to sin. What is God's solution? Well, as with many other places in the Old Testament, the heroes, in very different ways, prepare us for the great hero. And in lots of ways, they echo in advance the arrival of Jesus. And the echo is very strong between Moses' birth and Jesus' birth. Both are weak yet inextinguishable lights. Both babies under a death sentence. Moses was clearly here. Jesus was as well though, you remember, after he was born. Herod, again, because of fear, issues that all the baby boys in the area should be killed. And Jesus is miraculously rescued and goes to Egypt. Wonderful little echoes. And yet actually throughout Jesus' life he was inextinguishable. I don't know if you've spotted that. There were several times where Jesus, uh, there were life-threatening moments for Jesus. After all, there, there was a time, you could look it up in Luke 4, when Jesus was in the temple and spoke in the temple and the crowd got so angry with him they wanted to kill him and throw him off a cliff. But it says he walked through the crowd. Or the time when he was in a boat, in a storm, and everyone else in the boat thought they were going to drown. And Jesus is asleep on a cushion. Why? He knows he's inextinguishable. He knows that's not how he's going to die. You see, there is one greater than Moses to whom Moses points. That though he came as a weak baby boy, he was inextinguishable too. Inextinguishable, that is, until he went to Jerusalem. And as he went to Jerusalem, was arrested tried, crucified. You can tell as you read the gospel accounts, Jesus is still in control. He's doing this willingly, voluntarily. He knows he's heading to the cross. And when he is nailed to the cross, the world grew dark around him. And that was when the inextinguishable light chose to be snuffed out, to bear our darkness And as we're going to remember when we take communion, to take our wrongdoing onto himself. Jesus is the greater Moses, who because of his death leads his people out of slavery to sin, for worship of God, and to the promised land of eternal glory. The Israelites would look back on this moment the birth of this baby boy, as the birth of the one God would raise up to be their rescuer. 
and he points us forward to the birth of Jesus, the greater rescuer, our saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your wonderful control throughout all of these chapters that even though times became dark, yet you were faithful to your promises. Help us to hold on to your faithfulness and help us, though we are fearful, to be faithful to you in dark times and help us to hold on to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, that weak yet inextinguishable light who came to this world under a death sentence yet was preserved by you and ultimately did die for our rescue. Amen.